0: of time, and I must confess, I, I read about every week something of him and about him, and take the text and reread it, and think it over again and again. And uh, there's one thing that I've come to uh, be convinced about, and uh, that is I'm convinced that Moses really did sincerely uh, believe that the Lord had called him uh, to deliver Israel. I don't I don't think there's any doubt about it. Every time I read the passage in Book of Acts, chapter seven. And then every time I read from you know, chapter 1 of Exodus all the way through chapter 3, I'm convinced he knew full well that the Lord had put his hand on him and wanted him to be the emancipator for the slaves uh, of, of Egypt, which were the Israelites. Now, with that said, I think along with it became a matter and um, uh, concern, as it were, that I believe he gained confidence. And um, it's not uncommon that as the Lord gives assignments that uh, he also gives confidence. You know, It's not a self-fleshly kind of thing, but sometimes that confidence can spill over and, uh, and it can take a form uh, of uh, personal arrogance or an attitude of um, I know what I'm doing and I can do it and I can fix it myself and I don't need anybody else to tell me what to do. I honestly believe in reading the, all the texts and when this week when I put them together, I believe that Moses came to the backside of the desert, a very arrogant man, He's very knowledgeable, very smart, trained in all the wisdom of Egypt. But I don't think there's any doubt that he had to be taken down a notch. Uh, The question would be obvious. Why would God put a guy on the backside of the desert as talented as he was if there wasn't something that God had to get out of him? And I believe what he had to get out of him was a dependence upon his abilities. I mean, here's a guy who the, was the son of Pharaoh's daughter, who had been second in line to the Pharaoh position, and uh, a guy who had all the access to riches while he was in that first 40 years. There just wouldn't be anything on his wish list that he could not have had. And yet, when he kills this guy, he thinks he's doing God's will. And God says, no, that's not the way I'm going to do it. And he flees and he himself takes it. He just goes in his own direction to the Midian, backside of the desert. And there he meets this uh, priest of Midian. And eventually marries his daughter and has a family there. So the, the point about it is it's quite obvious that God didn't have him there for a, a resort vacation. He had him there for 40 years to give him something of which he didn't have. And that is a confidence and a a face-to-face relationship, so to speak, of God himself. So when you come to uh, chapter 3, when you read the text again, verse number 2 says, The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of, of fire out of the midst of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. And Moses said, um, and Moses said, and Bush, and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, but put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. And he says, Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which thou art in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, uh, and interesting, under the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites and the Jebusites. That will be an important thing because that will show up again later. And those same people, uh, so to speak, are going to be watching. And uh, so the Lord warns them ahead of time. uh, These people are in that land. And they're going to be watching. And it's going to be important for you to behave yourself the way you should. And then, of course, at this point, m- Moses is not too, uh, he doesn't have a panoramic view of everything that's going to take place. The Lord is giving it to him in stages. But um, there is one thing I'm confident of now after reading so much for so many weeks about him. I'm confident he was pretty confident himself. That is, he was pretty sure he could handle this. It reminded me of a, a thing I read this week. Uh, in fact, I found it in while I was reading. It said that uh, when the National Cemetery of Gettysburg was dedicated, the chosen chosen orator of the day was Edward Everett. He prepared an oration which was scholarly and elegant, even to satisfy all the con- conveniences and convention people of such occasion. President Lincoln was deeply affected by it and, and humbly expressed his own sense of unworthiness and uh, in the contrast to which he felt a brief address offered to Everett's eloquence. But he, we all know, and what, by the way the rest of the story was, uh, what is said, and this particular report doesn't add it, but one of the others does, that uh, Lincoln had second thoughts about even giving what he had written down. He, uh, he said, this is just so so simple. And he said, I, I, I don't even know whether I should. In fact, he wrote later, he regretted giving it. But we all know that how needless it would have been for Lincoln to have those regrets because his wonderful words have become somewhat of the gems of permanent literature in the history of our country. And uh, probably every kid in school has had to memorize the Gettysburg Address. But I couldn't tell you the first line of Everett's statement. And I doubt there's anybody in this room who could. But you could probably quote more than the first line of the Gettysburg Address. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, when a guy thinks himself to be something, and by the way, Everett did. Uh, in fact, he at times almost had an attitude of mocking, an attitude and a spirit of, uh, of arrogance about um, what, what the president said and commented about it the next day in some cases, and one, two, two paper reports make mention of that. So it's interesting that um, the people who think they can often are forgotten about. And the guy who says, humbly, I just don't, I, I'm, not, I'm just not up to that. I'm not that able. I'm not that capable. Well, I believe that Mo- Moses came to the backside of the desert on Everett. And I believe he left the Lincoln. And I believe when he got to, to the 40 years of conclusion, I believe the Lord said, now you're ready. You're, you're going to be the man. You can do the job. And I believe that's why in the context of this that we have this particular setting because this is really uh, all that's said about the 40 years in the backside of the desert. This is the story. I believe, as I mentioned this morning, I don't believe uh, this is the first time that God appeared to him. I believe this is the first time the Scriptures recorded for us, uh, just like the case with Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the day. I don't believe there was just one trip through the through the trees. I believe that God met with Adam and Eve on a regular basis. And he knew them, they knew him. I I think it was a a connection in them. And I think that's what makes the sin of Adam and Eve and their rebellion against God so bad. And so in this particular case, I believe that Moses was called on by the Lord uh, to get to know him. And uh, his communication in this this particular occasion, and as I said, I don't think it was the first one. But in this particular one, it is to uh, show Moses that God is all-powerful. He's almighty. And uh, one of the things that we, as we were talking about the last time we were together uh, about the business of uh, worship, is uh, for us to really get to know God uh, will enhance your worship. People who do not worship very well are people who do not know very well our God who is almighty. And there's a lot of things about God that, that we just assume we know and yet, we haven't really necessarily read in the scriptures the great things about God. Uh, for instance, it's it's an obvious statement of the scripture that God is personal, personal God. Well, that's 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 a big deal. Something that's personal indicates it has your name on it. And if you've been saved by the grace of God, He has your name on your. His child, brother Mike, hit it in Sunday school when he talked about um, the many references. And honestly, brother Mike, I hadn't thought about that—that that, um, almost all the epistles Paul wrote, somewhere in that first entry, he talks about God as our Father. Now, I've read those things over 50 years in preaching, and I really never thought about that. But Paul, again and again, makes reference to God, a God the Father. God the Father. He talks about, well, you can just look at it very quickly. Mike said it in Sunday school. Look at it. Begin at any one of them. I think they're uh, almost every single one of them. It'll show up somewhere in the context of the thing. Uh, let's see. Um, um, let see which one I found. Yeah, in Second Corinthians chapter 1, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father. And you can go through almost every one of the epistles of the Apostle Paul. And one of the emphasizing points that he brings to the people he's writing to who are believers is to remind them that God is personal. He's their Father. Now, the thing about it is, if you really come to worship, the, one of the first things you need to recognize about God is that He's your Father. That's personal. It doesn't get any more personal than that. He's your father. He spiritually birthed you into his family through his spirit and his word. And you're his child. God the father. And that's who you come to worship. And so when you come to worship and you know, uh, you know that he's, uh, he's your father and you have this sense that um, uh, he's caring and concerned about you and as we call and reference things that are personal, it has our name on it. Uh, We have His name. It's embedded in our hearts. He's our Father. And that's one of the reasons you have a right to pray, Uh, My Father, which art in heaven. Our Father, which art in heaven, the Scripture says, but personalize and make it personal, It's My Father. And I have said more than once in prayer, My Father, here's what I'm faced with. Here's what the situation is. And I need your help. I need your direction. I need your counsel. And I want you to direct me through your word to get to the right answer, get the right solution to this issue. The point about that is all of these things that you know about God, if they are based in the Scriptures, they will enhance your worship. However, if you have caught on to things or heard things about God that the Bible does not solidify or verify, the fact is it can damage your worship because God's not going to accept from you Something that's not true—that is, if you say something about him the Bible does not subscribe to—that uh, means you picked it up somewhere else. And he doesn't want that. If you're going to worship God, he wants you to worship him in spirit and in truth, and he wants you to worship him knowing who he is, and he is personal. If you've been saved by the grace of God, he is your Father, and he wants you to come that way and wants you to worship him that way. There's something else about this uh, this whole thing, and it's uh, one of those kind of deals where. You only catch on to it by looking over many scriptures. Let me show you that as we're to worship God now, in, uh, it'd be good to get accustomed to it uh, because the Bible sets up what it's going to be, uh, and it'd be good if you know what to expect. Look, if you would, at the book of Revelation. Look at chapter number 4. Uh, Revelation chapter number 4, and look, if you would, at uh, verse number 8. Revelation chapter 4, and look to verse number 8. Revelation 4 verse 8. The Bible says there, Revelation 4 8, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, and is, and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat upon the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him and that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. In this passage of Scripture, it gives you a sort of a, uh, an insight uh, to what kind of worship is going to take place in heaven one day, someday. And what's interested in this passage of Scripture, the emphasis is laid for something that we know about God, but we don't always think about it in terms of having knowledge when you come to worship. And it's verse number 11. For thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for, in other words, because, Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Uh, It's a simple truth, but it's an important truth to get a hold on, that God created everything for his own pleasure. Not for yours, not for mine, not for America, not for the planet Earth. He created everything for his own pleasure. Now, when you come to understand that, that everything he created is for his own pleasure... There is a some, certain sense about that that makes worshiping him uh, just not just good. It just seems like the sensible thing to do. I mean, he created everything. Everything was created for his pleasure. Not for yours and not for mine and not for anybody else. For his own pleasure. So he is creator and he is the one who gets the pleasure out of it. It just seems smart to me and seems like it would be the common, normal, ordinary thing to do that person who did all that ought to be worshipped. And that's exactly what these guys did and uh, I say these people did in, in uh, Revelation chapter 4. Skip over to chapter 5. Look at chapter 5 of Revelation. Look at chapter 5 and verse number 11. Revelation five eleven, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the, the uh, number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing. And honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. What's important about this is that the same kind of people in chapter 4 do the same or similar thing in chapter four, uh, chapter 5 in verse 14. Is that they fall down and worship him that liveth forever and ever and ever a reminder that God is eternal. That is to say that uh, he's not only creator, and he created everything for his own pleasure, but to God's glory, he is eternal. And there's nothing else that's eternal. God is. Uh, His word is, but the fact is we only have copies of it, so when we get to heaven, he'll have to have a, a glorified position of it, or a condition of it, because it won't last in this world. It will deteriorate. Years ago, there was a, an organization, a Bible company, that went about telling people, families, to, to buy up Bibles and to store them in uh, pressured chambers so that they could you know, last forever and ever and ever and all that kind of stuff. Well, the truth of the matter is people bought them and people put them in these pressurized tra- chambers, and they had a, supposedly a tempter control on them and they were going to be something that would last forever. Ten years after they buried them, two thirds of them disintegrated. That is, they were deterioration started in. They couldn't contain them. And then when the people picked them up out of that chamber, they fell apart. And they were of no use anymore. You see, God's not talking about His Word as you and I know it. His Word is eternal. And be, the Word will be there. There'll be no doubt about that. But the point is that it won't do you any good or me any good to try to save one of these Bibles and, quote, take it with us. I've seen uh, over the years, and I've been preaching 50 years, I have seen numerous caskets uh, that had a Bible in it. Now, I'm not being unkind or rude or crude, but there's really no purpose putting a Bible in a casket because it'll just deteriorate, and you could give it to the Gideons or to these rebounding companies who send them overseas to missionaries. You'd do a lot better good than it would be put in a casket. Anything going in a casket is going to deteriorate, period. There's only one who's eternal, and that is God. So when you come to worship Him, you not only worship Him as the creator of everything, you worship Him as the one who created everything for Himself and for His pleasure, and you worship Him as the eternal one, someone who is never going to die, He's never going to get sick, He's never going to have a bad day, He's never going to be moody, He's not going to be like any of us. He's not going to be up on Monday and down on Tuesday, or up on Thursday and down on Friday. He's, going to be con- he's always the same. He never changes. That ought to make your worship of him easier. Just to know that he's always the same. He's always consistent. And to know that you will be worshiping, as I believe all of the folks in the presence of the Lord will do for eternity to come. Oh, it may be other jobs and responsibilities when we get to heaven, but I submit to you that one of the things that we will do the most of will be worshiping the Lord. And I think it's important that we learn to do it now as is humanly possible and then move from that. There's a third passage before we go back to the other text. Look, if you would, in Revelation chapter number 15. Revelation chapter number 15. And look, if you would, at verses 3 and 4. Revelation 15, verse 3. And they sing the songs of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Uh, Just, true, and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. Verse 4, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. I submit to you, I don't know everything about this text, but I know one thing. Now, when it starts out in verse number 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the songs of the Lamb, I can tell you right now, Moses didn't get his name listed there because he was not a worshiper. That's another reason why I believe what you get into in Exodus chapter 3 and following is how God taught him personally. And I believe God taught him so he could teach the Israelites and the Israelites then would honor and glorify the Lord, and even though they got all out of sorts between the time that Moses was called and the time that Moses died, the fact is that uh, nobody would look at Moses and uh, not say what the Lord said about him. He called him a servant of the Lord. Numerous references of Moses as a servant of the Lord. And the word servant in some of those cases means slave Same thing they were in Egypt. When the Israelites were there, they were called slaves. Uh, Egypt was called the uh, furnace of slavery and the furnace of fire of slavery. Reference is made to it. But the fact is, the word that's used frequently is that Moses was a slave of the Lord. What it simply means is that he looked to the Lord as his master and he he, uh, loved the Lord, he worshipped the Lord, his loyalty to us to the Lord. And it's interesting in verse number 3 that they sing the uh, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. That's amazing that Moses' song is put on the same level as the song of the Lamb. I'm just telling you, you don't get that kind of rating Just being a sloppy guy about your worship. So obviously Moses could teach us something about worship because it's these words then that are incorporated in these songs. These people who are singing it say, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways. And that in itself is unique. Uh, His justness is justice and his ways. The justice that makes everything right he doesn't do anything wrong he doesn't do anything shady doesn't do anything that's a little bit off square everything is absolutely just and right and in this case that's something to worship him about and he says thou thou king of saints who shall not fear thee o lord and glorify thy name for thou only art holy by the way remember this is spoken in heaven so even in heaven the Lord God seems to be holier than all the people who got there in all their glorified states. The context would prove to point that, that that He's above them. Wherever we are up there in all of our glorified state, He's above that. Because only He is of this level of holiness. But the good news is He's eternally that. He doesn't change like we will. We, we are unholy and would be in His sight. I mean, uh, He he couldn't even look upon His Son on the cross because Christ had all His sins of all of us on His shoulders and the Father turned His back on Him, wouldn't even look at Him. So the fact of the matter is He was in God's persectum then. He was unholy, the Son was, because He had all this sin attached to Him. But it's amazing to me that Moses, as a song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, a list within the words of that song speaks about the holiness of God. For all the nations shall come and worship before thee. I say to you that it's an interesting thing, by the way, some discussion about this happening on the earth and the vials and so forth. That's true in the context. The context further illustrates so that if we could do this on earth, as is the context here it will surely be done in heaven by virtue of the fact that the people who go there are more inclined not out of judgment to do what they'll have to do because these folks here may have done that these folks of the nations bowing to him may have done it because the vile judgments were so bad they, they gave up and worship we won't be doing that there what happens there it will be done because that's our heart to do it let me take you back to Exodus chapter number 3 if you would and look down to verse number 12 in the text In Exodus chapter 3, verse number 12, it said, And he said, uh, Certainly I will be with thee. This is after the Lord has given Moses the commission, what he wants him to do. And it's also after the Lord has, so to speak, certified Moses as being uh, obedient to him, subservient to him worshipful of him he says and certainly I will be with thee Moses and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee when thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt ye shall serve God upon this mountain it's interesting and uh, that phrase in that text is important because it simply states it simply states that when you brought the people out of Egypt you will actually serve God on this mountain The purpose of the deliverance out of Israel was worship. And uh, we say, well, I I, I thought there were some of these other verses incorporated in this thing. Well, it's important to understand that uh, when um, we read the scriptures and you do the word analysis and word checks, uh, you find out that uh, the word worship uh, is the same word for to be a slave. The same word in the Hebrew for worship is the same word that means to be a slave. It means to be a server, somebody who submits to a master. So the idea of what's happened here, Israel has been a slave in Egypt for all these 430 years. And uh, chapter 13, look if you would over there quickly, Exodus chapter number 13. Look at Exodus 13. Look down to verse number 3. Exodus 13 in verse 3 said, And Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which ye came out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out from the place there, there shall no leavened bread be eaten. He calls Egypt as a whole the house of bread. In uh, some house of uh, bondage, excuse me. And if you go to your Hebrew word and look for the word bondage, uh, many of the times the word for bondage is translated by the word simply slaves. It's a house of slaves, and that's what the Lord called it. What Egypt, what Moses is saying, it was a house of slaves. That's all it was. Then look over, if you would, to chapter number twenty. You're in chapter thirteen. Look over chapter number uh, twenty. look at verse number 2. He said, I am the Lord thy God, which I brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. King James calls it bondage. and the Hebrew word is the word slaves. Brought it out of a house of slaves. And uh, what's interesting about this is, in back there in Exodus chapter 3 in verse number 12, it says Moses would deliver Israel, and uh, one day would worship the Lord, on this very mountain that the Lord is speaking to... uh Moses from the burning bush out of it. And um, having served as slaves uh, to Egypt and to the Egyptian gods, Israel was now to serve the Lord, and the Lord wanted to come back to this very place where the Lord and Moses had this great eventful meeting. And uh, Moses, I believe, here uh, submits himself to be the subject of the Lord, to be the slave of the Lord, to be a servant of the Lord. Remember, Moses is repeatedly called a servant of the Lord. That servant carries with the of one serving. It also means one worshiping. One worshiping. I believe Moses was a classic biblical example of a worshiper. Somebody who learned how to worship God. Here's a here's a few of the verses we often look to. Look if you're at uh, chapter three in Exodus, look at chapter four and look at verse number twenty three. In Exodus four twenty three, you have uh, the return to Egypt and and um, the Lord says to Moses some things, and then he said in verse twenty three, and I say unto thee, uh, Moses is going to tell Pharaoh this. He said, "Let my son go that he may serve me, and if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son even Thy firstborn. When you come to chapter 7 in uh, Exodus, you'll see the same thing. Chapter 7 and verse number 16, and thou shalt say unto him, 'The the, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness, and behold, hitherto thou wouldest not hear. Then over one chapter to chapter 8. In chapter 8 verse 1, the Lord spake unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Then down in verse 20, the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning, and stand before Pharaoh. Lo, he cometh forth to the water, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And then one chapter later, chapter 9, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, you tell him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Then down to verse number 13. In verse 13, the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh, say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And then you can go into chapter 10, and you will see the same thing in chapter 10, verse 3, verse 7. Uh, the capstone verse is chapter 12. Look at chapter 12, and look at verse number 31. Chapter 12 of Exodus, look at verse 31. And he called for Moses and Aaron. Now this is Pharaoh. He called for Moses and Aaron by night, and he said, Rise up, get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. It's an interesting thing that um, this uh, serving is um, just like it is of the New Testament. Remember last week when we talked to you about uh, Luke chapter 10 in verse 38 through 42 with about Mary and Martha. And uh, Mary had chosen that good thing and was sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus while he was talking and no doubt teaching. And Martha was cumbered about much serving. She got caught up in the serving side of it without the worship side of it. People who get caught up in the serving and do not do the worshiping will eventually burn out. Eventually burn out. They'll get where church is cumbersome. Going to church is a humdrum kind of thing. But when you have make sure the worship is right, then the service will flow freely. That's why Moses is called by the Lord himself, Moses, the servant of the Lord. Look, to be called the servant of the Lord is to say several things. By the way, let me, uh, let me show you before we leave and it's time to go. So look if you would from uh, uh, all of those in uh, the Old Testament, look over to, um, uh, let me find my passage here. Look over to um, John chapter 12. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Look, if you would, at the first three verses. John chapter 12. You have the case with um, Mary. And back over there in Luke chapter 10, she was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Her sister Martha was cumbered about much serving. Mary was not cumbered about serving. She was worshiping. And here you have evidence of her balance. She said, the Bible says, John repeats this. Then said, or then Jesus, six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Here you have Martha serving again. Verse 3, Then took Mary a pound of ointment, a spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. You could preach a week about that. But the thing is, Martha still caught up with just serving. And here you have the service side of it from somebody who worships. And what Mary does here is ex- explained very minutely. She got this ointment, and she washed and wiped the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the details are given to us here. One, it was very costly. Two, she anointed his feet. Three, she wiped his feet with her hair. And fourthly, it affected the whole house where they were. It's, it spread out over the whole thing. Everybody in the house recognized the fragrance of what Mary had just done. Did anybody notice what Martha had done? Not a word. Did the Lord Jesus Christ comment about how good Martha had served? What a wonderful... No, not a word. But in the eternal word, Mary is listed. Because back over there in Luke chapter 10, Mary showed herself strong in worship first, and then serve as follows. Moses is called a servant of the Lord because he learned to worship, and then he served the Lord for all the years of his life. The Lord made a lot of mistakes, but... uh, I wouldn't want to stand next to him when the rewards are handed out because this guy be loaded. Uh, this guy will have a whole ton of them because he did more good than bad. And it is uh, very obviously the Lord talked to Moses and spoke to Moses more than he did any other human on the face of the earth. It's no wonder that in Revelation we have that we're going to sing a song of Moses, or they are at that time, or, and, and it's going to be the song of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the Lamb. Uh, that's uh, what you call getting, uh, getting good uh, headliner kind of recognition. And that's what happened in John chapter 12 where you have Mary who uh, is, in this case, she's worshiping the Lord and uh, worship in this kind of way is considered doing something for somebody that will bring you no good necessarily yourself. That means you don't do it to get something, you do it because you care. And in this case, she cared. And uh, what's more important, the Lord noted. And the Lord calls attention to it. John writes it down for us. And I assure you that for all eternity, this will be something that will be noted about Mary. She uh, got a very costly uh, fragrance. And she put it on the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, technically would be wasted. I mean, uh, I don't mean to be um, rude or crude, but you just simply get, you don't bathe your feet in cologne. You know, you just wouldn't do that. Even in this day and age, when of which this is written, that wasn't a common thing. I have a book on Bible and customs, and this was far away from what the custom was. Wash the feet, absolutely, but not anoint them with a fragrance. The only time it was done was with the person was a dignitary, someone of high level rank. And it's quite obvious that Mary looked at this as the highest rank possible, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And she anoints his feet. But she not only anoints his feet with this and then it begins to smell up the place, she takes her own hair and she begins to dry the excess of that perfume off of his feet with her own hair. Now, I don't say this is a, a put-down, but most women don't really want you messing with their hair. Can you imagine a lady getting down in front of a man who's been walking in the outside, and if his feet had not been washed by a servant, then his feet would have been dusty in his sandals. And here's this woman, and we would assume she has long enough hair, she could bow down before him, and after she's anointed his feet, she takes her hair and turns sideways and gets very low and begins to dry his feet with her hair. I I can't imagine a more unlikely position for a person to get in. And then what happened was, the room, the room was saturated with a fragrance from what had happened. By the way, I'm not so sure, but one of the old preachers is is correct when he said there had an unnaturalness to it to do that. What made it unique was uh, God the Father or the Spirit took that fragrance and sort of whisked it around, sort of stir it up, where it would cover the whole house. There's times when I come to the church through the week and after the services of Sunday and I can walk through the front door and smell the perfume of all the people who had perfume on on Sunday. It lingers and I believe it lingered in this house. And I say to you that it's because Mary in Luke chapter 10 is an excellent illustration of true worship, sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus while he speaks and talks and teaches and She's open-hearted, open-eared, and she took to heart what he said. And then, chapter 12 of John, her sister and she have, again, access to the Lord Jesus Lazarus is present. And Mary then takes out a, a, a very costly perfume, anoints the feet of Christ, wipes it with her hair, and the whole room is filled with the fragrance of it. I say all that to say this to you. When you worship the Lord, and you know who you're worshiping, And that's important. And you ought to ask yourself, who am I worshiping? What stands out to you about the God you say you're worshiping? What ten things would you tell me about your God when you come to worship? Just ten things. Ten things out of probably a hundred things in the Bible or better. What ten things do you think about with your God that you worship? And then secondly, not only the thing about knowing who you worship and knowing him that way, uh, but also having this uh, sense of wanting to do something for Him, because in worship there is it has to be costly, and worship is costly. You have to give your time. You have to quit what you normally do. If it's to come to church, you have to lay aside other things that you could be doing, so you could go to church and you can do what would be a costly thing for you. Mary did this. It was very costly to give up this perfume. But it's, uh, there's no evidence at all that she had any reservation or had any uh, question about doing it. She, she, she had such a relationship with him. She had worshipped him already and now she's serving him. And she never, cost, she never counted the cost to determine exactly how much she could give or put in there. If you worship with the offering you bring in, calculating it is not the best way to handle that. Just give unto the Lord. And I'll assure you, he'll give it back to you better than you can give it in. He, somebody said, we put it in in spoonfuls, he hands it back in a shovel. There's a truth to that. Because if we just are very careful about not doing too much, or we, we have some kind of formula we follow to say, well, just, just this much is what you give God. You don't know anything about the story in John 12. This is very costly, and the evidence is this is something that the average citizen could not afford. But she had it, she got it, and somehow she saved it until this occasion, and she poured it on the feet, not on his head this time, on the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. To most people, and if Judas had been anywhere around, I'm sure he'd have squawked like a a rooster getting run over with a car. He'd say, what are you doing? This is costly and it could have been uh, saved and sold and given to the poor as he was prone to do. And I can almost hear Mary say, Oh no, this is worthy only of my Savior, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. You see, your worship and your service are tied together by the simple fact that they mean a similar word. In fact, there's a second Greek word. One Greek word means to bow down and face toward. The second Greek word of worship means to serve. So worship and serve are intertwined and they intermingle with the reality of the one to the other and Mary is a perfect illustration of it. I hope you will learn to worship and I learn to serve the Lord with all your heart. When you do that you have a perfect balance of what God wants. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this privilege. And as we dismiss this service and we head to our homes, I pray that we'll not go without what we've heard and received that's settled deep into our hearts. And may we make a difference for us the week ahead. In Jesus' name we pray.